0: It's the Hebrew word chesed. And we need to be reminded that we don't learn to love God or to uh, express love for other people easily. It goes against our sinful nature. It's a process of spiritual growth. And it is only those who are maturing in Christ that really come to a point where they begin to understand uh, who God is and can truly learn to love him. And as we've seen in our study in the second hour in 1 John and earlier in John that true love for God is not this sentimental idea that is so common today. It's not an emotional thing. It is uh, always expressed in learning about God, knowing God, and in obeying His commandments. And it is expressed in in kindness, not just to those who deserve it, but to those who are undeserving. Now, in the life of Ruth, we have seen that Ruth has dealt faithfully. That's that word chesed. She is dealt faithfully with her husband, who is now dead, and with her mother in law, Naomi. And she exemplifies that as they come back into the land and come back to Bethlehem. They are poor. They're impoverished. They're at the bottom of the uh, social ladder. They have no man to work for them, no man who provides for them, and they are as needy as anyone can be. And yet, Naomi, or Ruth, rather, is going to demonstrate the life of the believer in times of need, in times of personal crisis, in times of adversity, and she's going to trust God. She demonstrates the faith rest drill by trusting God and doing what God expects her to do. We focused on the fact last time that she exemplifies the principle of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. She's trusting God because she knows that God has set up a system in the mosaic law to take care of the poor the widows and the orphans and God set up this uh, welfare system it's more of a workfare system because God recognizes that the way he has made man and because of the curse of sin there's something about irresponsibility that is appealing to the human race And that if people are just given things without working for them, then it is self-destructive. It does something to the dynamics of the soul. And so when God set up a system in Israel in order to take care of the impoverished, he did it so that it involved their exercise of personal responsibility so that they had to go out and work. And in that agricultural society, it meant that, that the farmers were not to completely harvest every uh, piece of grain, every corn on the stalk, every uh, corner of the field. They were supposed to leave the corners unharvested so that the poor could come out from the town and could walk through and do their own harvesting and they would find food. So it emphasizes the principle of work and personal responsibility, which takes us back to an emphasis on the first divine institution, which is human responsibility. And once a national entity starts getting into any kind of a welfare system that violates the first divine institution, then you're in trouble. It is always going to be socially destructive because you're going to tear down the family and you're going to tear down the culture because you're going to create a, a needy, reliant uh, subculture that's going to think they're basically... Uh, uh, they, they are. It is their right to have uh, this kind of provision and just to be get, given uh, everything they need. They start thinking in terms of entitlements instead of, of uh, work and responsibility. So we see that she understands this principle of personal responsibility and that God has provided a system to take care of her. So she goes out, and at the beginning of chapter 2, she's going to work in the fields, trusting that God would pro- provide someone who would look upon her with favor. And that word favor is the Hebrew word hen, which means grace. So she is relying on the grace of God, working through people to supply her need. She recognizes that, 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 and what we need to recognize in this book, is that God's not in the forefront of the stage here. He's like the stage manager. He's behind the scenes. We don't see him brought out onto stage at all. But we see him working behind the scenes in order to provide for the needs of the family. So the first thing we saw, we, we, was a focus on the faith rest drill. The second thing in terms of summary is that the believer, that Ruth, like the believer, is to do everything to the glory of God, including work and family responsibilities. And she's a hard worker. She gets out there early in the morning. She's taking care of her family. She recognizes her responsibilities toward her mother-in-law. And she is going to be the one who assumes that mantle of responsibility and gets out to work third principle we saw in terms of summary is that often the coldest darkness in life precedes the warmest light. And we go through hard times, but sometimes we have to go through those difficult times, and God takes us through that suffering in order for us to learn certain dynamics in in the Christian life, in order to put things in practice. As we grow as a believer, often uh, I see just this isn't necessarily a doctrinal principle, more something based on my own observation and experience is a person comes to be saved and they have a period of time in their life, two, three years maybe longer depending on when they're saved, but they have a period of time when things go fairly easy for them and it seems like God uh, answers prayer in sometimes uh, uh, incredible ways and that, that's because God is dealing with that individual as a baby and nurturing them along and in that process they're going to be taught some things about the Lord and they're going to learn some promises, hopefully, and they're going to learn a few principles. And then God is going to say, okay, there's enough in the soul now to test their faith, to test the doctrine in their soul, and there's going to be some adversity. And that adversity is going to come along in order to give the believer an opportunity to trust God. And what happens so often is, is in our society, we've misrepresented the gospel uh, to the tune of uh, Trust Jesus and all your problems will go away and you'll be just happy. And, and uh, we always, I remember there was a track that came out back in the 70s called How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. Now, it is true that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you grow to spiritual maturity, you can have an immeasurable happiness and you will only, only in a relationship with the Lord can you have real understanding of life. And therefore, have real meaning in life. But that's not what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about salvation and eternal life. It's not about happiness. And so, um, too often people hit that first stage of of a little uh, testing in life, testing of faith. And then they uh, just disappear and you don't see them again. Or they become embittered by God. Or sometimes as they advance a little more, uh, they hit some serious testing. And then they like like Naomi. They start questioning the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But we have to understand that sometimes we have to go through that darkness before we uh, before the light comes. And then finally, fourth point in terms of summary: we never know how how long it will take, but God's grace always supplies for us abundantly and generously. And that's what we saw when we wrapped up last time. Is that Naomi, or Ruth has gone out into the field, and Ruth has been uh, gleaning, and as she was recognized by Boaz, Boaz then treated her in grace. He, he gave her more than was necessary, and he, he didn't violate the principle of personal responsibility, and he didn't violate the principle of her, of her working. He didn't just give her food, he recognized that she still needed to work. But he made it easier on her, and he told the, the, his harvesters, you know, leave a little extra. When, you're, when you bundle up the sheaves, you know, drop a bunch out on the ground so it's going to be easy for her. And when she went home, she went home with, with um, approximately 25 or 30 pounds of grain instead of 5 or 10 pounds of grain. And so this impressed uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi is beginning to wake up and recognize that maybe the Lord is not unfaithful and maybe the Lord is actually going to provide for them and maybe there is actual hope in the future. And so we come to uh, Ruth 2 verse 20 where we stopped last time and here we're introduced to a couple of crucial principles that will be illustrated for us in the next two chapters of Ruth. Now it's important to understand this. This is a principle. The n- Doctrine explained in the New Testament is frequently illustrated for us historically and experientially in the Old Testament. You have a historical picture of the doctrine in the Old Testament, and you have the doctrine explained in detail in the New Testament. And that's true for the doctrine we're going to be examining this morning, redemption. So when you're a parent, or you are a prep school teacher, and you come to teach any doctrine, you need to go back into the Old Testament and find out how did this doctrine, how did God begin to reveal this doctrine to us? In what ways is it illustrated in the lives of the Old Testament saints? And that's easy for kids to understand because it's not so abstract. You get into the New Testament and you get these theological developments in Romans or in Corinthians, or in Galatians, uh, dealing with various different doctrines. And they might be a little tougher, a uh, six- or seven-year-old to grasp. But if you go back into the Old Testament and you look at how it's played out in the lives of of uh, different uh, individuals and how God related to them, then they see this picture, and God uses that again and again and again. And we're going to see that the foundational ex, uh, illustration in the Old Testament for redemption is the Exodus event. You can't understand what, really fully understand what Christ did on the cross and what is taught about redemption in the New Testament without going back to Exodus because Exodus is the, is the picture that God used to teach redemption to Israel in the Old Testament. When we come to Ruth 2... and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead." Again, Naomi said to her, "This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives." Now, as soon as we get into this, in the first statement by Naomi here, we run into a bit of a translation problem, and uh, that that can produce a lack of clarity. She starts off, she says, may he be blessed. And we have to understand who is the he here. To whom does the the uh, third person, masculine pronoun refer? And it refers to Boaz. Because Ruth has just explained to Naomi how Boaz has looked upon her with favor. She uh, talks about all that he did for her and that his name was Boaz in verse 19. And Naomi responds, may he be blessed. So she is uh, pronouncing a blessing upon him. May he be blessed of the Lord. And then we have the phrase, who has not withdrawn his kindness. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. Look up on the screen, and you will notice that when it says, the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness, that the, the his... At the end of that third line, it starts with a lowercase h. Now, this would indicate perhaps that the translator has uh, interpreted this, that the who refers not to the Lord, but to Boaz. That's the problem. To whom does the who refer? Does the who refer to the Lord, or does the who refer back to the person who is to be blessed may he who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead is that how it's to be read and that is a wrong reading uh, the general rule of grammar is that whenever you have a, a pronoun that is referring back it always goes to the most uh, or, or to the most immediate uh, antecedent or the nearest antecedent and so the nearest antecedent here to the who is the Lord That's the word right before. So the phrase, who has not withdrawn his kindness, is a reference to the Lord, and the his should be capitalized, that that she is recognizing that it is Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness. And when she says, then she comes to the phrase, to the living and to the dead, this is a typical Hebrew way of speaking it's called a a merism it's a figure of speech called a merism which means that you take two words that are opposites and you use them together to express the totality of something for example God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1 it doesn't say God created the universe there's no word for universe in the Hebrew they talked in terms of a merism heavens and the earth they're opposites and they include the whole thing the psalmist talks about The uh, blessed is he who meditates on the Lord day and night. So you have opposites, day and night, and you put them together and it expresses the totality that blessed is he who thinks about God and concentrates on doctrine continuously, day in and day out, we would say in uh, English idiom. So, Uh, She is talking about the fact that God has not withdrawn His kindness to anyone. And if we take it literally to the living, she is referring not simply to... I mean, she's referring to herself, that she's beginning to recognize. She's got this glimmer of recognition now that God has not withdrawn His kindness. And kindness here is our familiar word, chesed. He has not withdrawn His faithful, loyal love. This is crucial to understanding who God is. In the Old Testament, if there is one word that is used to, to sum up all of who God is, is it's this word hesed. Sometimes it's translated loyal. Sometimes it's translated faithful. Sometimes it's translated love or steadfast love. Sometimes mercy. Sometimes compassion. It is a, a word that is very difficult to bring over into English because it is so loaded with meaning in the Hebrew. So she begins to recognize that that back in verse one, that she was I mean, in chapter one, that she was out of line, thinking that God has brought us back empty. That uh, she told all of her friends, "Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because uh, God has dealt uh, harshly with me." So she's blaming God for all of her problems, and God's not not on our side anymore, and God's forgotten about us. And God's off doing something with the Canaanites or he's uh, helping Samson up north or one of the other judges, but God's ignoring me. So she's in a pity party and she is uh, self-absorbed and focusing on her own problems. But now she is gaining a little objectivity and suddenly something happens and she thinks that, well, maybe God hasn't forgotten about us after all. So he has not withdrawn his hesed because God never does withdraw his God is always faithful. And this reminds us of the integrity of God. And this is crucial to understand what we're going to get into at the end of the verse, where it talks about his redemption, the kinsman redeemer. So when we look at the essence of God, we are reminded that God is sovereign. That means that God rules the heavens and the earth and all of human history. Nothing that happens to us. No matter how harsh, no matter how uh, chaotic it may seem at the time, nothing that happens in our lives is outside of the control of God. He is sovereign. All creatures ultimately answer to him, and no one can do anything without his permission. God is righteous and just. This was often expressed with the old English holy, which derives from the Hebrew word kadash. Q-A-D-D-A-S-H and it literally means to be set apart. So it is used in various uh, different forms to refer to instruments in the temple that are set apart to His use, to priests who are set apart to God's use. And in this sense, it relates to the uniqueness of God. When it talks about God as holy, it talks about the fact that He is unique. And he is unique in terms of his character. And the righteousness of God represents his absolute perfect standard. God is perfect and can do nothing less than perfection. And his justice represents the application of that standard. So God is righteous and he is just. He is also love. And this is expressed in the Hebrew with two different words... The first is ahav, and this last bait here is a soft, almost like a, like a, um, like a V, ahav. And our word hesed. This is a rough hate, hesed. And these two words come together, and primarily this word is a non-emotional word. And so we see a connection here often. Uh, the psalmist says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Chesed and truth go out from it. So we see a connection between righteousness, justice, chesed love, and then another category of God's character, which is his veracity. He is absolute truth. We can look at other attributes that are related to this. He's eternal, he's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. And all of that. those things are related. The fact that he has eternal knowledge of everything. He is omnipotent so that he is more powerful than anything that we face or any creature that we we are opposed by. He is omnipresent so he is everywhere, present to every part of his creation at all times. So he is present when we are going through any trial, any uh, difficulty. And he is immutable. He never, never Changes. He is always faithful. He is always going to respond the same way, and He will always do what His Word says He will do. But the core of His being relates to His essence, or excuse me, His integrity. And we have gone over this again and again and again, where we see that the righteousness of God expresses the standard of His character, and the justice of God is the outworking or the application of that standard so that What the righteousness of God uh, approves, then the justice of God blesses. These are connected. What He approves, He blesses. But what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Nevertheless, God is faithful. He is faithful to Himself. Therefore, He is going to give His creatures an opportunity for salvation. And so, His love is the basis for His actions in human history, and it is expressed towards undeserving creatures as grace. So, grace provides a solution. So, the righteousness of God and uh, what the righteousness rejects, the justice of God condemns. The love of God produces a solution expressed in grace and revealed to us in the truth of His Word. And so we have to go to His Word in order to find out who God is and what His plan of salvation is for us. So with that as a background, we need to look at the next key word here, which is the word uh, goel. We see here that Naomi says, the Lord has not withdrawn His his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And the Hebrew word that she uses here is the word goel. G-O-E-L. And this is a crucial word and a key word for understanding the entire Relationship of Boaz to Ruth, and what's going to take place, because there's going to be some really unusual, uh, odd things take place in chapter three, and so we have to understand something of their customs and something of the of the background, Old Testament background, to comprehend the goel and what this means. Because when when Ruth hears this, it comes loaded with a with, with all kinds of uh, of of uh, various different meanings and all kinds of baggage that's going to give her a real sense of hope and a real sense of a future. This man that she just happened into her field, remember the writer said just to emphasize the fact that nothing happens by chance, God's in control of the situation, she just happens there and uh, she is going to work in his field for about three months that he is a goel for her. And that word is often translated kinsman-redeemer. Kinsman-redeemer. And so we're going to have to take a bit of time to study what the Old Testament teaches about the kinsman-redeemer. It is a technical term related to family law in the Mosaic law. It's a technical term related to family law... In the Mosaic Law, and there are five areas of responsibility that are stressed for the kinsman-redeemer, for the goel. And in some passages, the emphasis is more on the kinsman aspect, and in other passages, the emphasis is more on the redeemer aspect. But if you wrap it all together, it's basically saying that if you are related to someone, you have a responsibility under divine institution number three to take care of them. Too often today in our society, it's easy to forget we, we live fragmented lives. We live in a society we're going to study more on postmodernism in the second hour and how society is fragmented up into as, as a result of, of a technological advances over the last two centuries into individuals. We, we look at people in terms of, of individual units, and so we, we uh, find ways to uh, evade Family responsibilities, and I'm not just talking about taking care of elderly parents, but also responsibilities that continue through life for siblings, for uh, cousins, for other family members. We have lost sight of the of the whole uh, idea of family taking care of family, especially in times of crisis. But but this was one of the key ways God provided for the stability of society in the Old Testament. And once you start losing that and you start having a breakdown in the, fa- in the family, then you start seeing a uh, collapse inside divine institution number three, or excuse me, divine institution number uh, five, the n- national entity. Okay, let's look at, begin to look at these, these five areas of responsibility for the kinsman redeemer. First of all, he has a responsibility towards the property of the family. The Word of God recognizes the importance of personal ownership of property. And the kinsman redeemer was to make sure that the inheritance, that is, the possession of land that God had given to each Israelite in the land, that he was to make sure that that inheritance never was lost to the family, that the hereditary property of the family never passed out of the family and was never lost. God made sure that every member in Israelite society had land. And the kinsman redeemer was to protect the family. And we're going to see that that's a key idea in redemption is uh, protection. And the kinsman redeemer is to protect the family's property. Word of God recognizes personal ownership of property. And so that shows that socialism and communism have no place in any kind of Christian or any kind of society that is grounded on the Word of God. Socialism and communism are never authorized by God because the Word of God recognizes the right of personal ownership of property and to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of personal ownership of property. And that brings with it, as, as an owner of property, it brings with it a certain amount of responsibility to use it wisely and not to use it merely selfishly. But even if people do use it selfishly, that gives no government, no one else the right to come in and take it away from them. See, that's the idea of the so-called cultural elite that we have today, is they think that they have a right to determine how other people spend their money. Somehow it's evil to make a lot of money, to become wealthy, to own a lot, and to have a lot of possessions. But that 's blasphemy against the Word of God. The Word of God recognizes that, that God is going to bless people physically. Now it 's not restricted to that. you don 't want to get into the whole prosperity theology garbage. but God does prosper people. and uh, when you have a government that wants to come in and take thirty, forty, fifty percent of what somebody earns, then that 's nothing more than robbery. They have a right to tax. But their tax, the taxation systems should not destroy people's ownership of property. Part of the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer had to do with maintaining property. But notice, it's not just limited to property. He is also to protect the liberty of the family, the liberty of the family. And there is a connection between freedom and owning property. This is why when they were working on the Constitution of the United States... And they were working on that phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The original draft was life, liberty, and property. Because they recognized that independent free ownership of property is crucial to freedom. And if you take away the ability to own property and to be responsible for property, then it is also an assault on freedom. So the Word of God recognized this in the role of the kinsman redeemer. He was to protect the... Uh, liberty of the family. and there were times under the Mosaic law when, if a family became indebted, if they overused all their credit cards and got extended, then in order to pay things back, they could put themselves into slavery. See this is one of the interesting concepts about the Word of God in contrast to modern American uh, uh, liberalism, is that modern American liberalism wants to look at a, at a uh, institution like slavery and say that it's bad. It is by definition evil. But God does not regulate evil. He doesn't. That means when God regulates slavery in the Old Testament, He says that slavery in principle is not evil. It may be practiced in evil ways. For example, racial slavery or slavery that you can't get out of or the person can't buy himself out of is evil. God provided a system of slavery that was a protection in the Old Testament, that a person could go into slavery for a period of time, but they always had a way to buy themselves out, or a kinsman redeemer could come and buy them out. Not only that, but at the end of 50 years, the year of Jubilee, all slaves were free, and you started over again. If you sold your property in order to get the money to pay off debts, Jubilee, it returned back to the family, so the family never lost their property. So there were certain guarantees put in there. So it was not the kind of uh, harsh slavery that we uh, often associate with, because in our experience we have uh, usually seen the evil kind of sl- uh, our approach to slavery as opposed to one that is designed to get people back on their feet. And that's what this was, was a way to provide security for those who had been irresponsible and could no longer live uh, in, in society because they had, been, uh, they had given up all their security because of their irresponsibility. So the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was to maintain the freedom of individuals within the family by buying back those who had been sold into slavery because of poverty. He would be one who could come in, and because he, if he had the resources, then he could purchase their, their freedom. So the purchase of freedom is another aspect that is inherent in the concept of the kinsman-redeemer. For example, we find this covered in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verses 47 and following. Now, if the means of a stranger or sojourner with you becomes sufficient, a sojourner would be someone like Ruth, who is a foreigner who is not a native-born Jew. Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger, that would be a Jew selling himself to a foreigner or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have the redemption right after he has been sold. So the individual has the right to redeem himself. There is always a way out of slavery. It's not for life, and it's not something that's locked into, uh, unless the individual volunteered for it. And there was there was provision for that. There were those in uh, Jewish society who could opt and opt out to be a slave for the rest of their life, and they would wear an awl in their earlobe, so that it was a physical symbol to all around them that they had voluntarily put themselves into a position of slavery. Verse 48, then he, that is the person who is now enslaved, he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives. Notice it's not just brother or sister, it goes out to uncle, it goes out to cousins. There's the extended family or clan that can pick up the Goel's right. His uncle, his uncle's son, may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then with his purchaser shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. That means that there was a price there. If it's one year to Jubilee, I'm not worth much to you. But if uh, there's 47 years to Jubilee, then I would be worth more to you. So it's going to cost more to uh, purchase back my freedom. Uh, it is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him, so that, that uh, the, the price of the slave would be equivalent then. See, so this is a good economics lesson. The price of the, of the slave would be related to whatever goods and services he would provide, uh, any other hired person would provide. So it was on an equal basis. So just because he was a slave doesn't mean that his labor was cheaper. He's still viewed as having the same value in the economy as a hired person. It's good capitalism. Leviticus twenty-five fifty-one: If there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his uh, redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. So there were rules for the master. He was not to be oppressive. In his ownership of the slave. And then uh, verse 54, "...even if he is not redeemed by these men, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him." So there's always was this out. In verse 55, "...for the sons of Israel are my servants, the Lord says, and that means they're not to enslave themselves to others. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt." And the picture here is that the land is owned by me. Everything is owned by, by me, God says. And he is parceling them, that out to the families and to the individuals. And if they fail because of irresponsibility or whatever reason to lose it, then it's not lost permanently and it reverts back to the family during the year of Jubilee because the ultimate owner is the great king who is simply uh, parceling this out to his vassals. And it's a fantastic system for economics, and one that um, that uh, modern economists would do well to study. Third principle related to the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer: he is to uh, he is to be concerned with the life of the family. Notice he is to protect property, liberty, and life in the family. He is to track down and execute murderers of near relatives. He's called the blood avenger. In the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament, he's the blood avenger. Numbers thirty-five, twelve, and verses nineteen through twenty-seven. He's to track down and execute murderers. That means that if, in that society, if someone uh, was guilty of manslaughter, someone was found guilty of murder, and uh, the courts did not uh, execute justice, then it was up to the goel to do that. And there was also a provision of of cities of refuge where they could escape and they could live in that city of refuge and not die. But if they were outside the city of refuge, then he could take their life legitimately. See, the Bible recognizes capital punishment. And uh, the only problem with capital punishment today is not uh, that it is uh, used, as some people think, but that it isn't used enough. And people have all kinds of screwy ideas about capital punishment. Now, we have problems today because it is not often applied equitably. But that's because the whole judicial system often is not equitable. But the principle of capital punishment is laid down in Genesis chapter 9 as the foundation for human government. And it is uh, explained clearly for various reasons in the Mosaic Law. And it is... uh, reestablished in uh, Romans chapter uh, 12 in the New Testament so you can't avoid that the Bible clearly authorizes and God clearly expects man to use capital punishment and this was just one form it took in Israel and this was explained in Numbers 35:12 12 says and the city shall be to you as a refuge this is the passage that sets up the refuge cities the city shall be to use a refuge from the avenger that and the word there for avenger is goel so that's part of the meaning of that word goel he is an avenger he is the one who is going to be executing justice here and the city shall be to use a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial so if he, uh, somebody kills somebody, kills your relative, then you can go after them. But if they make it to the city of refuge, sort of like home base, then they're, uh, protected until the government, uh, puts together a trial, and then they're, they're, uh, executed if they're found guilty. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Verse 20, And if he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, see, that's that's even for uh, what we would call today accidental death or uh, pushed him of hatred. Well, he just got too emotional. Uh, It's not premeditated. It was just out of anger, so we'll give him second-degree murder. Uh, That's all illegitimate under the Mosaic law. God doesn't see that much of a distinction. Man does because we're too fearful to take life, but God authorized it. And God in his omniscience knew man would make mistakes. And just because you might make a mistake is no excuse for not doing the job. Uh, numbers 35, Or If he struck him down with his hand in enmity and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death When he meets him, so that's part of the responsibility of the goel. Fourth, the goel was to make sure the family had a future. The kinsman redeemer has a future. If you don't have a have a uh, future, then your past is irrelevant. So he uh, he was supposed to uh, guarantee a future. So for the family, that means that he was to receive money for restitution for any deceased crime victim. So if uh, there was a victim of a crime who died, then money would be taken in by the go as restitution for that crime, and that would provide for the future of the family. Assuming that the crime victim was not able to take care of the family in the future, this uh, financial restitution would provide security for the future of the family. And then the fifth area of responsibility, and that's covered in Numbers five eight. And the fifth area of responsibility is justice, justice. The Goel was responsible to make sure that, the, uh, that justice was served in any legal matter involving a relative. And we see, we'll see a picture of this in the next chapter in Ruth because Boaz is not the nearest kinsman. He's a more distant kinsman, and he knows that there's a closer kinsman who has the Goel rights. And so he goes down to, in order to protect the family and make sure that everything's taken care of, he goes to the gates of the city, which is where their courts sat. And so they have to adjudicate the whole uh, situation as to who's going to take the uh, responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And he's going to make sure that justice is served for Naomi and Ruth. So the kinsman redeemer makes sure, th- make sure that those in the family, uh, those who are helpless are taken care of and that justice is served in legal matters. This is um, seen in various passages, Job 19.23, Psalm 119.154, and Jeremiah 50.34. In Job 19, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. See, he has gone through unjust suffering in his eyes, undeserved suffering, and yet he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. This is referring to the justice that God executes on the earth. We would call a comparable analogy in our society is the supreme court of heaven. It's the court of last and final appeal. And when all is said and done, God is the one who will bring about justice for the family. And whatever has happened in my life that is undeserved or unjust, it will all be made right by the Lord at the um, final judgment. Psalm 119, 154. The psalmist pleads to God, Plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to thy word. And the terminology there, plead my cause, comes right out of Hebrew legal terminology to plead a cause in a courtroom. And notice how it is related. The concept of justice and pleading a cause in the courtroom is related to what? Redemption, goel. And he is praying to God to exercise his a role as the goel for mankind and here it also has the idea of protection and in jeremiah thirty four his reference to the Lord their redeemer that is the redeemer of Israel is strong the Lord of hosts yahweh Sabaoth the Lord of armies is his name. He will vigorously what plead their case notice that's that term from the Hebrew again From the Hebrew, Reb, R-I, it's a soft bait, again, R-I-V, and it has to do with presenting a case in courtroom. He will vigorously plead their case, and that's his role as Redeemer. He pleads their case in the Supreme Court of Heaven so that he may bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. This takes place just prior to the Babylonian captivity and is a promise that God ultimately will bring justice against the Uh, Chaldeans the Babylonians so the goel is the uh, emphasizes family responsibilities and the emphasis is on the corporate unity of the family notice how as we've gone through these verses the goel is related to the function of three divine institutions the first divine institution which is uh, responsibility individual responsibility the third divine institution which is uh, family, and the fifth divine institution, which is um, which is the nation, which is the nation. Also, the fourth we could add in the fourth divine institution because he's going to execute justice. It's related to human government. So you have. Four of the five divine institutions, and by implication, even marriage, but four of the five divine institutions are specifically related to the function of the goel. So the function of the family unit and family responsibility is inherent to the stability of any nation. Now, the concept of goel goes far beyond the practice in a human dimension. It goes into the whole doctrine of redemption for the term goel, is one of or the verb gaal is one of two key words in the Old Testament for redemption so we're going to start this week we won't finish it this morning but we will start this week with looking at the doctrine of redemption as it's developed out from this illustration of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament so'll we'll start with point number one redemption terminology redemption terminology there are two Old Testament words used for redemption now I don't know why it did that that is really strange because earlier that was just fine and now it's just it's reversed my Hebrew well you'll look at the Bible it's Pada. you can't read the Hebrew anyway Pada, P-A-D-A-H this is the first word for the first word for redemption, Pada, and it means to ransom, to deliver, to rescue someone. To uh, The core idea is to pay a price for the transfer of ownership. One thing that you should get clear, whenever you think of the word redemption, you ought to think of payment of a price. It is a financial term. It's amazing how many terms related to salvation are economic terms. We owe a debt that's covered by expiation. We are redeemed. That's the payment of a price. Um, many, many words in the Scripture are um, uh, uh, concepts are related to economics. Uh, it means to pay a price for the transfer of ownership from one person to another. Though it always emphasizes payment of a price, the goal is always freedom, to free something. Whether it's an individual, an animal, or an object, the ultimate goal is always freedom. So it emphasizes the payment of a price to free someone or something from a state such as slavery, death, or destruction. Now the second word, yeah, I did it again there. It's the second word that is used is the verb ga'al. Ga'al. Gaal, G A, and then it looks like an apostrophe. That covers. That transliterates the Hebrew Aleph, which is uh, this letter right here. That, that's not, that's a consonant, but it comes across in English as a. We translate it as apostrophe. It's just a soft glottal stop. Gaal, and Gaal means to deliver, to save, to redeem. It means to remove an object from a dangerous situation as an extension of being redeemed from indenture or slavery in Exodus 6.6. 6. It means to buy back or redeem, that is, to purchase back an item or a person with money or goods that had been sold at a prior time. So once again, the term ga'al also emphasizes the payment of a price. And it has as a secondary meaning the idea of Protection means to deliver, save, redeem, to remove an object from a dangerous situation as an extension of being redeemed from indenture or slavery, Exodus 6.6, 6. to buy back, redeem, or purchase back an item or a person with money or goods that had been sold at a prior time, Leviticus 25.25. And then the noun form is goel, goel. And that's the form we find in uh, Ruth. And there I just put up on the overhead, you don't have to write all that down, that's just a straight copy out of uh, the Lonida, uh Hebrew Dictionary of Semantic Domains, that it means kinsman, redeemer, redemptor. That is a relative uh, near of kin who buys an object from indenture or slavery or possession and control as an obligation to help a widow, Ruth 4.6. Note part of the obligation is to marry the widow. He's a kinsman buyer, a redeemer, that is, one who purchases an object that had been previously sold. The kinsman avenger, formerly redeemer, that is, a relative who will provide personal justice for the murder of a relative as a figurative extension of buying back the life of the victim. Notice in some contexts, it may not be a near relative. It could be a, a distant relative. And then redeemer is a title of God with a focus on, on the fact that he has redeemed or bought back a person from an unfavorable circumstance and so now has provided relationship with the one redeemed. And then we have a list of verses, Job 19.25, Psalm 19.15. That would be the EB there is English Bible. That's Psalm 19.14. There's a one-verse difference in many psalms between the Hebrew numeration and the English numeration. Psalm 78.35, Psalm 103.4. Proverbs 23.11, Isaiah 41.14, 43.14, 44.6. A number of these we'll look at uh, in a minute as we continue this study. So those are the Old Testament concepts, Pada and Goel. And they emphasize the payment of a price. That's why we talk about Jesus as the Redeemer. He pays a price at the cross for our sins. The same ideas are found in the New Testament words. New Testament words all come from two root words. One is lutrosis or lutrao, And so you have various forms with different prepositions. The first is uh, apolutrosis. Did I skip one? Yeah, I did. The first is uh, antilutron. Let me put this up here on the overhead. Antilutron. A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. Antilutron. Compound word. The second syllable, or second word there, lutron, comes from lutrao, which also means to, to buy, to pay a ransom price. So, antilutron means the payment for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. In 1 Timothy 2.6, uh, antilutron is used there and in conjunction with the preposition who pair and who pair uh, plus the uh, uh, genitive of advantage indicates substitution. So it is payment as a substitute. Payment as a substitute, and that's in first Timothy, first Timothy two six. Second form of this word that's used is apolutrosis which also means uh, deliverance procured by the payment of a ransom. means to release a slave upon receipt of a ransom. I'm just going to run through these to emphasize that all these words that are translated redemption in the New Testament all have the same meaning of the payment of a price, payment of a ransom. third word is lutron. This is the root word, the root noun, and it means the payment of a ransom. It is the ransom price. The price paid for freedom. The verb is lutrao, which means to pay the ransom, to deliver by ransom, to liberate. And in the middle voice, it's used to mean redeem. Then there is another noun, lutrasis, which means redemption, deliverance, or freedom. We have redemption in Christ. That implies freedom and deliverance from something, which, of course, is the penalty for sin then there's another noun, lutrotes, which it refers to the Redeemer, the Liberator, the Deliverer, the One who pays for freedom. In Acts 7.35, it refers to Moses as the Redeemer of Israel. And that took place when? At the Exodus. So we're going to have to go back and look at the Exodus event in history as the background for understanding redemption. The next word is agorazo. Agorazo means to buy or to purchase in the marketplace. From the word agora, which means uh, marketplace, and that was where the slave market was located. In English, we have the word agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is one of those psychobabble terms to describe people who are afraid to go outside. Anyone who's afraid to go out and deal with people has a basic sin nature problem, and they need to address it by applying the promises of God. Any of the promises that deal with fear are enough to overcome that. Uh, everybody has different weaknesses in their sin nature, and whenever you give in to them, they are going to blow up into major problems. And anyone who lets their sin nature control them and not face it with, uh, with doctrine is just a coward, ultimately, for not facing the core problem and applying doctrine to uh, handle that problem. And that's all point number one. We 'll probably hit that again by quick review last week, our next week in terms of the um, old, uh, the words in the old and New Testament, and next time we 'll come back and uh, begin looking at redemption as it worked itself out in the Old Testament as a picture of what Christ would do on the cross when he paid the sin penalty, when he paid the penalty for our sins and that 's the emphasis is he paid a price he paid the judgment. He paid the condemnation for us on the cross. It was paid in full, which is when he said to Telestai, paid in full. And that means that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today and to begin this insight into the doctrine of redemption and, and the many different ways in which you have uh, taught this through, through uh individual activities in the Old Testament through the activities of the kinsman redeemer, through the exodus and all of which foreshadowed and help us understand what Christ did on the cross as a substitute when he died as a substitute for our sins. Father we pray that there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would make that sure and certain right now. The scripture teaches that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone because he redeemed us he paid the price and so now we have been um, set free the penalty has been paid but it's up to us to apply that to accept it where it would be applied in terms of forgiveness for all eternity and having a right relationship with you father we pray for those who are here that are saved that we might be challenged and encouraged By what we have learned today, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.